Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Matt Chansey. Matt is a nationally recognized tax consultant who educates the professional advisors, which includes CPAs, attorneys, commercial real estate brokers, and M&A consultants on how to better serve their clients from a tax-focused perspective. Matt, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Ross. <laughs> so taxes, in my opinion, are one of the more misunderstood things out there. I don't think a lot of people really understand how our tax code works. And this is a podcast geared to dentists, many of who are very high income with a growing net worth. So talk a little bit about what you do and a lot of the misconceptions that the professional advisors out there have. I think one of the biggest misconceptions around taxes, number one, is that CPAs do any level of tax planning whatsoever or tax professionals do any level of tax planning whatsoever for the majority of their clients because they don't. The reality is, is that they're overwhelmed with tax preparation work. They structure it like an assembly line to get through it as fast as they possibly can. And they don't have any real time to be able to look at your tax return, your expenses and all this stuff from a planning perspective and be able to make adjustments or recommendations that, that you would implement without a further explanations that you actually understood the recommendation. So to make that super simple, if your tax professional does not bring you in in the second half of the year and charge you a completely separate fee to have a completely separate conversation that is wrapped around planning and not your return, then you ain't getting planning, whether you believe it or not. You heard it here first. (laughs) And it's such a big deal because my argument is the highest rate of return is a dollar taken back from the IRS. And everything that tax planning is, is legal. This is not some illegal scheme or anything like that. It's taking the tax code to your advantage. And as a dentist who owns your own practice, you're a business owner. And the tax code is advantageous to you as a business owner. Correct? Sure. Absolutely. Like for, I'll give you a stupid example. I talked to a medical esthetician yesterday that's making like, million and a half dollars a year and somebody had and they're like what can we do between the end of the year and they had a simple uh, a simple plan which is basically a deductible retirement savings vehicle right and i was like well if nothing else why not use a sep it has larger contribution limits you can deduct more like that's just one simple thing why use a simple instead of a sep and they're like huh and i'm like well that wasn't very hard not what i'm doing but like that was really very low-hanging fruit that nobody saw, right? Right. It's crazy. So if someone wants to actually work with a tax planner, and I know a lot of CPAs, I work with a lot of CPAs, and there aren't many out there that actually do tax planning. How do they find these people? I mean, I kind of call them unicorns. So what? Are they, how do they find them? That's a great question. I mean, okay. So most people, let's talk about not how they find them, but let's talk about how they find the person that they have, right? 
So when you start off, you get a referral from a friend, you get an introduction, you Google somebody, maybe back in the day, you pulled them up in the yellow pages or whatever. And you're like, oh, I need a tax person. And you just hired them because you were at the beginning phases of building and business entity selection and some basic fundamental stuff. But you know, the average CPA or attorney might have 500 clients. They don't know when they help you start your business, who's going to ultimately be successful and outgrow all the tools that they could bring a mass affluent business, middle market business owner. So, you know, the foundational things that you start with are probably all the same, but it's just like my third grade teacher. My third grade teacher was foundational to my education, but there came a point when I graduated the third grade and needed to move on to somebody at a higher level. And I had to say goodbye to Miss Doherty. She was great, but she couldn't take me any farther than that. The problem is, is we're humans and we value relationships. So when you outgrow the current relationship, very few people go, I'm too big for you and I don't need to be here anymore. And I'm going to go find the next person to take me to the next phase. But there is an old expression that rings true here. It's what what got you here won't get you there. And this is very applicable in this scenario. So those trusted relationships in your early formational years, at some point, if you become a shining star, you should fire those people and you should upgrade. I can't tell you how many high net worth, high income people I've talked to who are still working with the same original CPA out of loyalty. And what they don't realize is out of those 500 clients that they have, two or three might be high income. And and there's always so much time in a day. And when 98% or 99% of your clients are W2 employees, I mean, that's a commoditized thing, That's but it takes so much time. They don't have the time, energy, or the motivation to go out and learn these types of things. If people knew the amount of education that you have done in the last you know, dozen or 15 years to learn to get your level of knowledge, they'd be blown away. And most CPAs are just fat and happy in my experience. And I, I signed up for a new tax course, like literally this week, like over the weekend. And I so I continue to keep learning. Like, I don't ever think that I figured it all out. I don't think you'll ever figure it all out. I think it's a constantly iterative process that continues to change not only what you do, the codes you can utilize, but how you communicate what you do to help people understand that there's a difference. Well, and I heard one CPA uh, who is a tax planner made, made that make this analogy. He said, whenever a new tax law is passed. It's not like they scrap everything before and just put that down. No, they just paper mache it on top. Yep. And so it's all confusing. I think there's like 7,000 pages of tax code, but there's like another 70,000 pages of whether it's interpretations or private letter rulings or 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 whatever. So it's it, no one can really know everything. But in your experience, you know, a high income person, you know, let's just say a million dollars. I mean, obviously, that's a good income. I don't know that we would classify that as a high income, but it's just, it's a nice round number. If they're a business owner and they're just doing normal stuff, they're probably paying, depending on the state, three to $350,000 in tax. Is that about right? Married filing jointly at a million dollars with no state income tax would be about 350, give or take. So we live in Florida because we're smart. And so we don't like to pay state income tax. You know, California and Massachusetts are about to get income tax increases. But and so it's even higher if you're in someplace else. You know, you could be a place with a low state income tax, like four or five percent, or you can be in a high state. But with tax planning, proper tax planning, working with a professional, on average, 
what do you typically see that tax liability reduced to from 350 to what if done properly with a good professional? You know, look, I would say, let me frame this and explain it in a little different way. And then I'll get to your answer, right? Yeah. Okay. So, if you're making a hundred, so there's a definition in the IRS code, and this is government stuff. This is me just explaining words. So there are terms like mass affluent or rank and file, and then highly compensated employees. Those are things that are basically like, those are definitional things. They're not judgy things. They sound kind of judgy a little bit, but they're definitional things. So highly compensated employee is around $125,000, $135,000 a year. They escalate that over time. You know, inflation adjusts those numbers. So husband and wife are married, educated are making, you know, close to $300,000, right? The problem is, is the tax bracket for married filing jointly at about $330,000 is the gap where it jumps from 24% to 32%. So they're not even paying any dollars in a 32% bracket. So they're technically, I don't think you should be tax planning for people, really sophisticated tax planning like I do, unless people are at least having dollars hit in the 32% marginal bracket or higher. Now, those other people can use things like 401k plans, right? A 401k plan allows you to duck like $20,000 or some other comparable type retirement plan. If you make 125,000 and you can save 20,000, that's effectively 20% of your income. That's a really good savings rate on a tax deductible basis. But what happens if you're making $500,000? Is 20,000 still significant? Maybe, maybe not. If you flip to a SEP, maybe you can deduct $50,000. That's now also still 10% of your money. Well, what happens if you get to a million dollars? You can't use a 401k. You can't use a SEP to get 10% savings. You need a different apparatus. So what would you flip to? You'd go from defined contribution to defined benefit and do some type of pension structure or a hybrid structure that has a combination of defined benefit, defined contribution at a million dollars. But what happens when you get to $2 million or $3 million of income? None of those retirement planning things make any sense from a cost or an implementation standpoint because the benefit of the deduction that you get is so small and insignificant, you need other planning. And there aren't tax planners or professionals out there that know how to plan for those people when they cross over a couple of million dollars a year in income. They All their tools don't work anymore. And that's when they just start saying, hey, you should pay the tax. And, and that's a travesty. Well, it's really easy to say that when you're not the one paying it. And uh yeah. <laughs> And be I, careful. I, be, be careful taking tax advice from a person that makes less in income than you pay in taxes. Say that one more time. <laughs> be, be careful taking tax advice from somebody that makes less in income than you pay in taxes. And look, what I mean by that is they might understand the sophistication of the tax code and the way it works, but they're never going to make the same behavioral based decisions that you make because they're not in the same. They don't have the same stress on them that you have from writing a you know, a $250,000 check. If your tax planner makes $250,000 and you pay the IRS $250,000, you are not the same people. You're not even close to the same people. So you have to be careful taking the guidance of that person. I have a client. He lives in a high tax state. He's worth $65 million. Uh, we're working or we're trying to work with him on some estate planning, but his CPA is a little bit of a challenge. His CPA is like, just pay the t- estate tax, basically pass it down to your kids you don't, and don't deal with it. Well, that's obviously estate, pl- estate tax planning is, is an optional thing. You don't have to do it. No, I'm doing it. Um, but the perspective of the CPA to do that, especially when a large majority of this person's net worth is in real estate, 
And, you know, you can't decide what the real estate market is when you die. I mean, not everyone knows the Joe Robbie story in the Miami Dolphins. For those of you who don't know, he didn't have an estate plan. He died. They had to sell the Dolphins to pay the estate tax. The team and the real estate. He owned the team and the stadium. Yeah. So they had to sell that. So, the, I mean, legacy versus George Steinbrenner, who died in 2010, the one year there was no estate tax. So, which is very George Steinbrenner-esque. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, these these professionals, it, it's very easy to project what I consider small-minded thinking on people who are much higher net worth. Well, and well, just- there, well, there's two reasons for that. That estate planning case is super simple and I see it all the time, right? So think about this from a human standpoint, forget tax planning. So you got one client that has this problem out of all of your clients, one. So you don't get to practice the skill on a day-to-day basis. So you don't know it inside out, backwards and forwards. So then you're like, okay, I got two choices. I can either go and try to educate myself to figure out how to do it, to solve it for this one client. But will I, do I have any certainty that I'll ultimately be right if I waste all this time and all this effort to accomplish the tax savings for the client? Number two, even if I do go get all that information, how in the world do I bill the client for all this time and effort and everything when I've got 299 other clients to plan for and help just in my assembly line? So I don't know how to actually answer their question. If I take all the time, I don't know how to get paid back for all the time I apply into it. So at the end of the day, it's easier to shrug your shoulders and go, you know, maybe you should just pay the tax on this whole deal. And if the client leaves you, the client leaves you, right? But well, it's- This is where you and I differ from this guy, because you and I like complex things. We like to learn more and we always want to be learners. What the guy doesn't understand is he could charge this client enough money where he could only he could be his only client. He could literally get rid of his all of his other clients, charge this guy, whatever, and make a great living. But he doesn't have that the way of thinking. Well, if he could provide enough value to justify the additional compensation, I 100% agree. Then the chasm is, is his gap in knowledge. How long would it take him to become proficient enough to be able to actually add value to that person on his own? Or would it be easier for him to maintain the quality of the relationship and find other professionals to partner with that can therefore impute their value through his relationship to the client and and speed the whole process up? Well, that's a great way to do it right there. I tell the tax people all the time. I go, look. I'm not telling you that I'm smarter than you in tax because I am not suggesting that, but I chose a different path. You've spent 30 years building relationships with clients and have trust. I've spent 15, 20 years building technical expertise and how to solve complex problems for really rich people. Could you have done what I do? Absolutely. Could I have done what you do? Absolutely. So what's the best use of our time going to go forward basis? Should I go back and build a practice and spend 20 years building trust with new people so that I can apply my skill set? And should you start going and learning the skill sets that I have? Or should we leverage one another's value proposition to these clients, your trust, my expertise, and solve the problem? You know, I think that's a you know that's the that's the Reese's peanut butter cup solution peanut butter and chocolate's better together well speaking let's talk about your expertise first for a second tell the people kind of what you did last week and how often that happens oh so last week i got invited to the so the florida bar has different sections so florida bar is for attorneys and then they have different sections so the tax section had a meeting last week in Naples, Florida, and there were 
like 35 attorneys there that were, they were department head. And I don't completely, it was my first time going to this particular. So I was trying to figure out how their ecosystem works a little bit. I don't even take business cards and stuff when I go. I just go and walk around and meet people and see how the whole dynamic plays out. So like people were asking me for my business card. I'm like, I didn't bring one. I'm not here for that. I just wanted to see what you guys do and see if there's any role that I can play. Right. So there was a dinner one day, one night. And then the next day there was a bunch of CE continuing education programs, CPE programs, and so CLE programs. And so, you know, I went to go see how it all played out, but it's the tax section. The tax section has two types of attorneys. It has estate planning attorneys that deal with estate taxes, and it has uh, tax attorneys that deal with other types of taxes for the most part. And a lot of them kind of work in tandem. And there's also some tax controversy attorneys, which is if the IRS comes in for an audit and you have a defendable position, you hire a tax controversy attorney to defend you from the IRS to make your argument on your behalf to make sure that you don't have penalties and interest and all the stuff, you know, from from the tax strategies that you ultimately use if you took an aggressive position. So I just was networking with those people and having dinner and having conversations and learning how they plan for their clients and and talking it out. So, you know, 35 of the one of the attorneys that sat at my table over dinner was the 2019 tax attorney of the year for the state of Florida, like uh, so with a really big firm, I guess, supposedly uh, she's a superstar and a rainmaker. But but so. people like they don't invite non attorneys to this type of event. For the most part, no. I mean, so, they so- will. I mean, they don't invite C. I mean, they might invite a CPA or an attorney, but like a financial advisor like yourself, uh, even though you're a little bit different type of financial advisor, that's never happened before. Well, look, I'm not going to say it's never happened before. That would be I don't have enough background on that. I'll say I'll say it, even though I don't have the data to back it up. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So so look, and I don't identify as a financial advisor in our world of identification. I identify as a business (laughs) owner. I, I identify as a business owner that knows a lot about tax that monetizes some of my IP through the use of financial services licenses, but I don't identify as a financial advisor. No, I think that's, that's a good point. So it's like, you know, you, I mean, someone's like, oh, I want to talk to, I want Matt to be my financial advisor. No, no, that's not, that's not how it works. He doesn't replace these other people. He comes in and consults. So let's talk about, so, I mean, you know, you got a business owner, he's making two or $3 million. In this example, this is a dentist who's a business owner making two or $3 million. They're growing. They have lots of good problems. What are some things they should be considering? Maybe they're working with a tax planning CPA. Maybe they got lucky. Maybe they found one. Maybe they're mitigating their taxes. But what are some of the challenges you see with people like this? So the person I had a literally had a consult yesterday with the person, like I said, it was a, like a medical esthetician type person. So medical space, making a higher than average income. So here was the planning that I kind of recommended for her based on her fact pattern. Right. She was like 39, married, couple of kids doing really well, going to make over a million bucks. And, you know, the person that brought me in said, we want to do some sophisticated tax planning. And after having a conversation with her, she really had no goal of growing her business and becoming this massive monstrosity of a business with her working more and more and more hours. She's like, look, I have to give these injections and I'm afraid that my hands are going to go bad in time and I don't want the arthritis and I want to be a mom as well. And I love where I'm at. So I was like, okay, so I think here's what we should do. So first of all, she needed some qualified planning. Like she didn't really have, you know, 401ks, IRAs, simple SEPs, cash balance plans, pension plans. No one had ever looked and optimized her 
ERISA-based tax-deductible planning that she should do. So, so that was the first step. We could probably get her a couple hundred thousand dollars a year deductions. Um, her husband also played a role in her business, but wasn't compensated for it. So making him an employee, providing certain income, putting him on the retirement plan as well, made a lot of sense. We also made the recommendation that she buy her office building. She was paying $3,000 a month in rent, and she planned to do this for at least the next 10 years. So she's going to put $360,000 or more into that office building over the next 10 years. And if that appreciable value just doubles over the next decade, that could be a million dollars of equity that she would have in an asset instead of paying rent to somebody else. And I told her that she really needed to focus on hiring new employees with the right skills, because why? Hiring an employee is deductible to the business. It brings down her taxable income and it helps her achieve her goal because her goal was to work less and find some balance, not to ultimately take over the world. So, you know, really one of the, from a tax perspective, you know, hire her husband, look at her entities, add retirement plans. She so, didn't have any. Yeah. So let me interrupt you. Let me ask you a question here. You've mentioned tax deferral a couple of times. Many times I've said I've been fairly anti-tax deferral because I feel like it's just kicking the can down the road. And I feel like taxes were probably in the lowest tax rates of our lifetime. Now, that's a bet. So we don't know. It's it's not a political statement. It's just a math statement. And but you, you in situations like this is the goal to defer tax now but then we'll just do more tax planning later when it's time to take a distribution out. Or it's like, you know, hey, they need a deduction now. Um, it's not the only dollar they have. It's okay, to, which it is. It's okay to have some tax deferred money uh, as long as it's not a vast majority of your assets, which I completely agree with. What, what's your perspective on it? So here's the part that you're missing a little bit in this fact pattern. Whoa, right? whoa, 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 whoa. It's my podcast. You can't criticize me. Wait like a that. minute. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. No, no, no. So look, a quali now remember, I wasn't talking about a client making $125,000 a year deducting money into a 401k. They should do it potentially for the match, not necessarily for the tax deduction, right? right. But here's the reason a person making a million dollars a year should use a qualified plan. Whether tax rates go up, down, or sideways, right? right. Regardless, they're deducting dollars out of 40% marginal brackets, and they will probably take those dollars back at 20% marginal brackets in the future, not because tax rates haven't shifted, but because they'll have substantially less income when they're taking distributions than now. And they might, and so what, think about this what if they're in a, in a state that has state tax? And now they're retired of Florida. So you're making dollars in a 37%. You're paying state taxes of another 10 at 47. You deduct it out of a 47. You move to Florida for retirement. And then you start taking those dollars back at an effective 18% rate 20 years later. That's a 30-point arbitrage in the tax code. That's good planning. Yeah, no, it is. And I've had one CPA say, I hate cash balance plans unless you're in California, you're going to retire to Texas or Florida. <laughs> but- don't high income people tend to not have a reduction in income in their distribution years? Or is it a, just a taxable reduction in income? So look, I would tell you that I've worked with so many really rich people, right? But mass affluent rich, middle market rich, very few people build their lifestyle off any more than about 
twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month in spendable income, even when they hit retirement. Right. right. So let's assume you hit retirement. You're living on twenty thousand dollars a month. Living on twenty thousand dollars a month is a pretty good quality of life. Your yeah. house is probably paid off at that point. You've got Social Security that's going to be a huge check because you paid in all this money over the years. And so now, if your twenty thousand dollars a month is only two hundred and forty thousand dollars a year, those dollars are in the twenty four percent bracket or less. If you deducted them from a forty eight percent bracket. That is a huge savings to maintain your lifestyle, even on an inflation adjusted basis later. So I would say that it makes a ton of sense for that person. Now, if you're talking about a person making $2 million a year or $3 million a year that lives on $600,000 a year or $800,000 a year, well, those dollars, when they come back and and maintain that $70,000 a month lifestyle in retirement, those dollars are going to be taxed at the top rate at 50%. So that that your argument applies in that market. I agree with you. There is right. the benefit of deferral, but there's no tax bracket arbitrage, right? right. So uh, when you, you use the word mass affluent a couple of times, define mass affluent from an income standpoint for people. So look, and my definitions are probably skewed a little bit because of the size of the clients that I tend to deal with. But, you know, a mass affluent person for me is somebody that really doesn't have dollars over the 32% break point. So married filing jointly, if you guys are making under $330,000 a year, you know, to me, you're mass affluent. You're, you're paying tw- less than 24% taxes on all your current income. You're probably by definition mass affluent. A single person is somebody making under $165,000 a year, give or take in that ballpark. So if you're making under 60, 165, I know that's good income. I am not beating up for that. But the way I view it, that person is somewhat mass affluent. Until you're paying taxes in 32% brackets or higher, then, then, then really the mass affluent tools will work for you. Okay. That makes sense. So how do you work with people? So like, I mean, you're not the type of guy, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that basically said someone picks up the phone and calls you, which I guess happens or doesn't happen. So like if people are listening and they're like, gosh, this Matt Chancey guy's amazing. I want to work with him. You know, kind of what is the fact pattern for someone to work with you and how would they, uh, how would they get in touch with you to do that? So I would say, look, if you're, I guess if somebody wanted to have this conversation, I am a big advocate of when I first have a consultation with somebody, I don't waste any time. I don't have time for fluffy, get to know you, build relationship phone calls. This is technical expertise right out of the gate. We start talking brass tacks right away. So if you're going to call and talk to me, I want you, I want your spouse, I want your attorney, I want your CPA, I want your business broker, I want your real estate guy, I want your current financial advisor, I want your insurance broker. I want your next door neighbor. I want anybody you would consult on a financial topic on that call or on that Zoom at one time. We are going to know very quickly if there is a place for me or there is not a place for me. And I am fine with either, but I am not fine with three phone calls. I do not have time for that, right? So get everybody on your team. Let's bring it all together. Let's have a conversation. And then you as a client are now educated. You can make the determination if I fit on your team, if I replace somebody on your team, if it just doesn't make any sense, if you trust the relationships that you have better than the expertise, I'm good with all of that. But I need a sooner decision, not a later decision, because I'm going to close your file and I don't have time to follow back up with somebody six months later and go, oh, I need to dust it all off and remember all the stuff that you told me before when I really thought through it. I just don't have time for that. And what's the income, kind of the minimum income really to work with you typically? 
So look, I'm blessed. I, you know, today I, I look for people that are qualified purchasers. So that's $5 million of net worth or more. And I look for people making a million dollars of income or more. That's kind of a minimum threshold and a minimum standard. And that's almost a little bit of a stretch for some of my people. Like it's hard for me to really start doing, but they can stick their toe in the water and start doing some of the stuff I'm doing at a million dollars in income and about $5 million of net worth. And those are statutory requirements. If you've never heard the term qualified purchaser before, Google it, look it up, read the definitions on it. Uh, most people have never heard um, accredited investor or you know qualified investor. So read those definitions as well. I got an article coming out on Forbes that talks about all that and why it matters. But anyway. Yeah. All right. And so how would they get in touch with you? LinkedIn is the most robust profile that I use, but I'm also very Googleable. So Matt Chancy, certified financial planner, is probably the easiest way to find me. But uh, you know, I've been in every media source that's out there at some point over the past decade. So you know, there's an article somewhere that'll come up. It's I get a phone call or an email almost on a weekly basis from somebody that's like, I read this article on this thing, and I think this is you. Can we talk about what we've got going on? So it's uh, that's a really easy way to find me. But LinkedIn um, is super easy. Matt Chancy CFP is how I come up on LinkedIn. So I still use CFP, even though I've been told by many of my professional partnerships to not use it because it makes people confuse me with a traditional like financial planner guy. But I it was hard to get. So I and I still value it. But anyway, so, well, (laughs) Matt, I obviously could ask you questions for another two hours, but we are limited on time. So I really appreciate you today sharing your wisdom. There you go. Thanks for having me, Ross. That was good fun. You've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannon. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannon, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannon, visit rossbrannon.com. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PASS, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information and services. Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. This podcast is intended for general public use. By providing this content, the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America and their affiliates and subsidiaries are not undertaking to provide advice or recommendations for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664, Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311-850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian. New York, New York, PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. California Insurance License Number OL10073-2022-146810 expires 11:24. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.